Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 28th, 2019. This is episode 2,368 of the Survival Podcast, and I have got just really a great show for you guys today. Uh, I'm excited about doing today's show. I had When I went through the, uh, the questions for today, I was like, man, I want to talk about every single thing that I'm seeing. It was actually hard to, to winnow it down to the emails that I wanted to respond to today. Remember, the way you get your email in front of me for consideration on a Monday show is send me an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure TSPC is in the subject line and then whatever else you want to put in that subject line. And uh, it'll come to my attention and I'll take a look at it and it may or may not get on the air, but at least I'll see it. The formula, if you got a link, put it up front. If you got a point, make it up front. Do that point or that idea, that thought in one sentence. Hit the return key if you want to give me details and then give me the details. Here's what we got today. What you should do right now, this week, if you're a federal employee back from the shutdown. That's not really a question, but I just want to put it out in a real quick segment. A new private college is now $11,000 a year. I'll tell you why. I think that's going to be considered expensive very soon. A listener has a great comment on not going super high-end with a long-distance rifle. Follow-up from my segment on Friday, and I really loved his comment. Uh, using a, ma a useful macro for recording interactions with law enforcement on your phone, there's a Reddit thread on this I want to make you aware of. I'm not going to talk about it deeply, but I want to make you aware of it. I want to talk a little bit about this concept in the first place. Uh, there's a new study out that says that an increase in handgun ownership is basically killing your kids. Um, but there's gaping flaws in it, and it's basically bullshit. I'll explain why, and it'll help you quickly dissect this type of bullshit when it's presented in front of you, or verify that maybe it has a point. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. In this case, it's pretty much bullshit. Uh, dealing with quail manure waste because it's too hot for a worm bin, so other ways to deal with it. Uh, now the establishment is confused by millennials that work their asses off. Yeah, really. Uh, this article, I'll summarize it briefly and tell you what I think about it. Uh, but I, you can scan it. I even sent it over to John Willis for fodder for his podcast, Pulling the Thread with him and Scully. Um, but if you read the entire thing, I'm convinced that it will damage your IQ, it will hurt your brain, and it will make you wish you didn't read the whole thing. I got a link to it. I'm just giving you the warning that I wouldn't read the whole thing end-to-end because -end it will... Make you stupider for reading it. Uh, next up, some pragmatic preps like wills, powers of attorney, etc. Jack is a jerk yet again, and it makes me so happy when I'm a jerk. Uh, the 1099 side hustle question that I missed last week, I'll get that done for you this week, and where I get cheap glasses and why I use that source, even though some people say you shouldn't, because they're, well, you know who those people are. They're the ones that want to sell you more expensive glasses. We'll talk about all of that and more in a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, the original survival podcast sponsor, the very first one, Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle Royal was with us before we actually had sponsors. I got an email one day from a dude named Vic Rontala from Safe Castle, and he said, hey, you want to sponsor the show? And I said, hey, I got like 400 listeners. I don't think you'll get your money's worth, but I'm building this thing. And he said, I know you are. Get with me when you're ready. I got with him when I was ready. I uh, had several thousand listeners at that point. They signed up back in 2009. It's 2019, and they're still here as a sponsor. They have everything you can think of for your prepping needs. They also build really badass hardened shelters. 
and they have a discount program called their, their Discount Buyers Club. Uh, it's 29 bucks a year, and you don't have to buy one if you're an MSB member. You get a lifetime one for free. You can't even buy a lifetime one from them anymore, but you can get their discount membership program for free through the TSP Members Brigade. So really loyal sponsor. If you can think of it, they probably have it. Check them out today, safecastle.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. You know, I really do think that we need to return to being a culture of people that get shit done. And that involves knowing how to do stuff. And one of the really great ways to like build up a skill set and a knowledge set is to make your own knives and sheaths and things like that. You can find all you need at knifekits.com to do that. They make it really easy to get into the knife-making hobby at an entry level and then take it as far as you want from stock kits all the way up to exotic materials. You'll find it all at knifekits.com. And they also do a discount for members of the MSB. Now, before we get to... Uh, your feedback for me today. Just wanted to make a pretty cool announcement. I have a new member support brigade uh, discount vendor for you guys today. Um, the Paracord store has joined us. These guys are awesome. I'm really excited to have established a new relationship with the Paracord store. Paracord and the Prepper community are damn near inseparable. So I was really excited when the management of the Paracord store reached out to me about working with us. So I got you guys a great discount on all their stuff, 10%. And, dude, they have it all, man. And they've got, of course, they got you know your 550 mil-spec Paracord that everybody's used to with the inside uh, nylon and all that. They also have super beefy Paramax cord. They also have 750 cord. They have 425 and 275. Those are a bit smaller to do other things with. They have Type 1 and several other specialty cords. And to complete your projects, they have a great selection of hardware and tools. They specialize in providing the highest quality 100% nylon paracord made in the United States. They were one of the first stores on the web. They were established in 2009, so they're almost as old as us. Their goal is to establish lifetime customer relationships rather than one-time buyers, and it makes them the exact type of supporting vendor I want in the MSB. So you can learn more about these guys at theparacordstore.com, and the discount code for you guys that are members of the MSB is already in the benefits section. I think for some of you guys that do a lot of projects, this benefit alone may cover your MSB membership, especially if you got it at a sale price. If you're not a member, it's a good time to do it. i got another one coming probably in a week or two. That's going to be really awesome. I keep building value in the MSB for you guys because that's my job to be an advocate for you, to get you great discounts, to establish these relationships. So consider becoming a member today if you're not already a member. And with that, let's go ahead and get into your feedback. I want to start out with just a real quick thing. The government shutdown is over. We're not going to talk about it. I really don't care. It didn't change the temperature of the water in my pool at all. It's still damn cold out there. Um, but I want I, I talked about this a little bit on how the media was overhyping how desperate times were for government federal employees who were furloughed. But let's say that you are a government employee and you were furloughed and now you're about to get your back pay because they're going to make sure that you do that. So you just got your 35 day paid vacation, but maybe you did get really nervous and really scared. You didn't have money and you were living hand to mouth. If you were doing that, you haven't done the easiest thing you can do to deal with this situation if it comes up again. If you are a federal worker, this week, not next week, because it might be three weeks from now, you might be dealing with this again. This week, take some time, go down to, you should have done this already, go down to your federal credit union, or you can, a lot of times you can do it online, sign up with an account at your federal credit union, whatever one's best for you based on the job you have. 
And pretty much they're all available to you as a federal employee, uh, except some of the ones that are maybe specific to the military. I'll talk about that in a second. Sign up with them and set up your direct deposit into your credit union account. You're better off with a credit union than a bank if you could find one anyway. What this will do, if you get the government shut down again a few weeks from now, and you damn well might, and I don't want to hear your crying shit then either, and you have done this, you can go to your federal credit union and say, I would like a loan for the amount of my pay for zero interest, please, and they will give it to you. They will give it to you. One more time, they will give it to you. Now, if you have a credit score of 13, they probably won't give it to you. But if you have reasonably good credit, you're federally employed, and you're getting your checks deposited through direct deposit into their bank from the federal government of the United States, 99 times out of 100, they will just loan you the money that you would have been paid. And don't be stupid and borrow more. Borrow the amount that you would actually get after deductions and stuff like that. And then when you go back to work, it all gets paid back, and you're right where you started. Now, there's other things you should be doing to be financially prepared, no matter what your employment is. But if you are a federal employee, you basically have a guaranteed job, it's damn hard to get fired, and you have this available to you, and I don't want to hear anybody whining or bitching or crying again. You just went through it, so fix it. If you are in the military, then it's probably USAA that you want to join. And my understanding from talking to several veterans who went through this before, in the past when military military went unpaid, if you had your check being deposited in USAA, you didn't even have to borrow it. They just covered your check. You didn't have to do anything. Now, I'm not saying that's always going to happen, but I'm saying, you know, past performance is a good indicator of future results. So there we go. I just had to say that. And when I hear the whining and gnashing of teeth, out of this community anyway, about how hard it is yet again If Trump and Pelosi do this again, I'm going to say I don't care because I told you what to do. Right. Next up, I want to talk about a new private college. This was sent to us by, I think, John and Moore Park sent this. And um, it's a new private college that's available for $11,000 a year. Um, there's a link to the article, but the guy that started it basically built a fortune uh, in steel fabrication. And I, I, I've talked about him before. Um He started already a private grade school uh, that is just, just it's like $7,500 a year or something like that. But his name is Bob Luddy, and um, he's done a great job with that. And now he's moving on, he's doing his kind of inaugural launch of his own college, and it's called Thales College. And they're only taking 45 students in their inaugural class, but... It's how entrepreneurs do things. We do a test, we make sure it works, we make it better, and then we scale it up. And so $11,500, call it about $11,000 a year, uh, you're going to be able to get a private college education. Now, right now, the college is not accredited. That will make getting loans difficult, and it may make it difficult to get some uh, other schools to accept transfers, though he believes that most schools will accept the transfer of credits because of the way that they've done things and the well bill of format things if you wanted to go to a different school. Um, while that may be an issue now, and it is one of the bigger issues now, I want to explain to you guys why I think this is just the beginning, and what looks small now is going to become a juggernaut, and why I think that the target price per year of college education, at least for the first two years, is around $5,000, somewhere between four 
and $7,500. bucks, 4000 to 7500 bucks, And I don't think there'll be an option. I'll think there'll be hundreds of options in that range. And the sweet spot's going to be about five grand. And, and here's why. If you get enough schools set up by the private sector doing this, they can, they can then bound together and form their own accreditation society. This is how we verify what have you. Initially, there'll be a lot of other institutions that will see this as a threat, and it is, and they will not recognize it. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to care. There's enough money if you're signing students up at that rate to make that work. Students will probably not be able to get Pell Grants, federal student loans, etc. This is the equivalent of how red tapes keep people out of like health insurance and stuff like that. Okay, and, and and I think what we need to look at with health insurance is the same thing we're looking at here. Not reducing the cost of health insurance, reducing the cost of health care. So while there is some things that the establishment can do to block things, there's nowhere near as much as there is in health care. It's so regulated. Now, there are things where the government has said you can't call yourself a college or a university if you don't do certain things. I think those certain things can be done, and you can end up with your own private accreditation society. Well, as soon as IBM and Google and other companies say, well, we think that accreditation is valid, it's valid. It's valid. And the reason I think five grand is the sweet spot is with a $1,000 down payment per year of education, a monthly payment through the year is about 333 bucks. If you can keep tuition under $400 a month on a pay-as-you-go, then any student that really wants to can work their way through college without borrowing money. It's, and that's absolutely the case. If you can't work your way through college at $5,000 a year all in, then you are not serious about what you're doing. Additionally, while I do think the price may need to be higher and we may need to do more with labs and research facilities and stuff to complete a degree, I think it is very possible to do 90% or more of at least the freshman, sophomore level work without stepping into an institution at all. And even if there is an institution, it will be more of a kind of like a, a makerspace type situation. And that is a lot easier to afford, and it, it would allow tons to be done. And then maybe in your senior year, tuition goes up. And this is one of the big problems that I think modern education has. We've, we've created a one-size-fits-all model and a one-cost model. It costs just as much to go to school your freshman year as it does your senior year if you're taking the same amount of courses and what have you. And then, you know, dorms and stuff, like, there's way better ways to handle housing. And uh, it, it, not having on-campus housing is probably a much better way for a student that wants to work. And then having a much more flexible schedule so you can work and do your, your studies when you can. Because here's where I'm going with this. Even if you say, well, we have to increase the cost of your education uh, as we go into your, your senior year work or you're, you're doing a master's thesis or anything like that. The student, by the time that they get there, will have established that they're capable, willing, and able to do the work at, let's say, up to the associate's degree level, where it will be very possible for these institutions to pull their resources, work with lenders, and provide their own financing. 
that's as good or better than whatever you get from the federal government. And by the way, probably doesn't come with something and put a lien against you for the rest of your life and the government makes you pay it and garnishes your Social Security checks. Because the private sector is and will always be more efficient than the public sector. Always. What has happened up till now in the neo-fascist state that we live in is there's been such a cash cow. The private sector and private universities have had no reason to really try to compete. There's always been correspondence courses and stuff like that that were in the back of magazines. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about higher learning done right. And again, I've talked about it before, and there are nano degrees and things like that now, and they're specifically saying, IBM, what do you need? What do you need someone to show up able to do? We're going to see more and more and more of that. And we're also going to see more and more geared toward you're learning what you need to go out and do whatever it is you want to do versus you're getting a degree in blah, 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 blah. Okay? Um, there will always be a place for the person that says, my passion is animals and I want to be a vet. Okay, that's going to have a pathway that's going to be more traditional. Um There will always be a place for the person. My passion is animals, and I want a degree in biology, and I want to work for a zoo, or I want to work, you know, in a research environment. And it's going to be more classic education for 90% or more of people that are going to college today. 80% of what they're learning is useless to them. It is useless to them for the rest of their life, and most of what they're paying for is an experience versus an education. It's only beginning. You watch. The number will get driven down. And more and more solutions like this are also going to be developed for homeschool families, and it's going to get to a point where a homeschool family will be a non-traditional homeschooling family with a lot of options. And if you can drive the cost down to where people can educate their children for a couple thousand, three thousand dollars a kid, that becomes and not have to be a hundred percent as far as having no place for that kid to go. I'm telling you, it gets a lot more viable. It gets a lot more viable, especially with people having... See, the thing is, right now, not all, but a lot of homeschool families tend to be large families. But there's a lot of people with, you know, the one, two kids that would like to do it that can't. You give them a meet-and-a-half-way alternative, and more and more of it's coming. And I'm telling you, the death nail... You know, they call it the death song of modern education is playing right now It's just the music is fainting in the background. But it will rise to a crescendo over the next decade. I promise you. Next up, um, I loved this comment so much that I dug it out of the blog to talk about it today. Last week I had a question on setting up... Um, anyway, again, last Friday I had a question about building a high-end long-range rifle. And I steered... Um, the individual toward a good quality sporting rifle and a good quality optic, and I even gave a recommendation for a higher-end optic than I think is necessary from Leupold. And um, I really said, you know, I think just a good quality Remington 700, Savage 110, you know, Ruger, uh, Winchester, and a good decent scope, and practice and learn to be a marksman, you're better off. Well, Eli, uh, again, gave this comment. I, I generally don't grab a blog comment and bring it on this show. If you don't send it to me as feedback for the show, I don't generally use it. 
in this case, man, I just thought this was and it because it, it does more than I talked about. Here's what Eli said. I agree 110% with your take on long-range rifles, but I'd go one step further and suggest getting one, not getting one even if your intention is to get involved with long-range marksmanship. I joined a really rad outdoor range near me that has various bays ranging from 50 feet all the way out to 600 yards. Having access to a facility like that got me really amped up for buying the Bruger Precision Rifle in 308 and a super expensive scope, which I'd argue is too, be too good for a beginner. To use a car analogy, buying one of these rifles because you want to get into long-range shooting is like buying a Lamborghini because you want to get into drag racing. Will you be able to beat most of the people there? Yeah, for sure. But just by being able to pull up to the line, enable launch control, and match your foot to the gas, you never learn things like how to shift properly, how to take off properly, or anything else because your car is doing all the work for you. Comparatively, if you show up in some old rust bucket sports car without all the bells and whistles, you really need to learn how to do all those things the Lambo does automatically. My Precision Ruger is the same way. Not only does it come sub-MOA out of the box factory, but everything out of the box can also be tweaked to allow the rifle to shoot extremely precise groupings almost by itself. Additionally, if you got a scope properly mounted and zeroed and you understand how to adjust it, there's even apps for this, so you never need to learn any of the ballistics math. You can basically shoot a target as far out as the effective range of the 308 cartridge on a calm day. You don't need to learn trigger control because the trigger is so light you can basically breathe on it to fire it. And all these other fundamentals you need to learn shooting something less high tech. I thought I was hot shit with my rifle until I saw old army guys taking the shots I was with a $2,000 setup and they were using M1 Garands and iron sights. People at my range are pretty friendly in letting folks try out their guns. And, well, shooting the M1 was a humbling experience. It made me realize how much I never needed to learn because the Ruger was so good. I still shoot it when I want to feel like I'm a good shot, but I've since picked up a cheapo Savage I bought used a couple hundred bucks uh, paired with an equally cheap 10-power scope. I feel like I'm learning so much more as I can actually see my improvements as I'm getting better with breathing, trigger control, and all that jazz. Oh, and the Savage does, doesn't weigh a million pounds. Eli, again, I thought that was a fantastic um, comment. I told him in the blog that I was going to talk about this today. He said, if you want to name drop the range I'm a member of, it's the Aurora Sportsman Club in Waterman, uh, Illinois. And he gives a link in the show notes from Friday's show. He says, a pretty hefty waiting list to be a member. Um, cool, man. I gave you a shout-out for the ranges because I like to comment so much. I, I completely agree, and I think I, I think part of why I and a lot of older guys, especially with military experience, feel this way is because of what we've done with iron sights. But I also think the other thing is, you know, we were the kid with that Remington seven six seven sixty, not seventy six hundred. That's how old we are, or that you know three thirty six or three thirty six C Marlin or the Winchester thirty thirty that was an uncle's gun or a brother's gun or a dad's gun that had most of the blue worn off. It maybe had some uh, hacksaw marks in the stock for every buck that it had dropped, um, sitting up in a tree with hand-me-down clothes, uh, making our shots on deer when we were 12, 13, 14, 15 years old with, with a rifle that was you know a few hundred bucks when it was brand new and was 20 years old before we held it. Maybe we still have it, and that gun's now 40, 50, 60 years old, and we still take it out and kill deer with it. And 
if you add to that some military experience, making 300 and 500 meter shots with iron sights, um, you get to a point where you feel like, well, don't you think you should learn how to use the damn thing first? And I think that's what, what Eli is saying. Like, if you take a kid and put them in a Ferrari, they're going to kill themselves. You know, they've never learned to drive, uh, you know, at all. And the first thing they get into is a supercar. And you probably aren't going to get that with a, a gun. You're not going to, because the gun is better. You're not going to kill yourself with it. Uh, though a study we'll talk about in a second says maybe you will. Um, but what you'll get is the bad habits. And this is the same reason that I like to start new shooters, uh, with a bolt action 22 with a fixed four power scope. Learn to drive the stick shift of your dad's old truck, and then you'll be able to drive anything you ever get behind the wheel of. And so I think it's a great comment. I wanted to uh, to bring it out for you guys today, and uh, kudos to Eli for making it. And it's a good add-on to what I had to say last week about it. So next up, I wanted to make you guys aware of this. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but there's uh, this comes from Brian. Brian said, I found this on Reddit the other day. It's a macro for the iPhone. Basically, it dims your screen, gets your location, and texts the people you want. You've been pulled over and your current location. It turns on the video camera, and when it exits, it texts your friends a video, and then cut, and it can upload to the cloud, and there's a link to it. I thought it was really cool. I started a post on it over at the Facebook forum, but didn't want to deal with the cops are always right crap this week, Brian, in Tennessee. Uh, Brian, the cops are not always right. So... I think that we need more technologies like this. And, again, I'll put a link to it where you can find the specific macro and information about it in the, the, the video notes today. But I want to talk to you about this from a standpoint other than the cops are going to pull me out of my car and beat me if I don't record them or all cops suck or what have you. If you make a phone call to any call center uh, for technical support with a product for warranty information, uh, to get your phone fixed by the cable company if you're on VOIP, whatever. You will probably hear something to the effect of, this call is being recorded for quality and training purposes. Now, it, I'm sure it has to do with quality and training to a degree, but more of what it has to do is, well, I, I was told that you guys were going to send me a free new blank. Well, if they have a recording of your call, they can then listen to that recording and say, no, sir, you were not told that. You were told a way that you could acquire a new phone or whatever. Okay, And then they have evidence that what you think was said wasn't what was said. Or they have evidence they may withhold then that what you were told is what you... But one way or another, that evidence now exists. And that's good for both parties because we don't go back to him and hawing about who said what to whom. And to me... I don't care if the cop that pulls you over is one of the best officers in, in, in the business. It is the case that, let's say, you decide that you want to go to court. You may say, Your Honor, this officer told me blah. And that cop will say, No, I did not. And the two of you are not considered equal in the opinion of a judge most of the time in a court of law. If there is a conflict between what was said and there is no evidence the court will tend to side with the law enforcement official. You can tell me that's not true if you want to, and I'll just tell you you're full of shit. So for simply the fact that I don't know when I begin my conversation with you as a law enforcement officer that pulled me over on the side of the road because my taillight was out, I was doing five over the speed limit, I failed to yield, whatever, uh, right or wrong, 
when you do that, I do not know, just like you do not know, what is going to happen during that interaction. I don't know if someone served you with divorce papers this morning and then the dog bit you on the way out the door. I don't know if your sergeant chewed you out. I don't know if you're in. I don't know if you're having a bad day. Okay. I don't know if you found out you're. You, you know you're going to get. You're, you're on the. You're on the short list to have an early retirement forced on you. I have no idea what's going on. You have no idea if I've had any kind of problems that day, and maybe I'm going to be a less reasonable person. But you don't know if I have a gun in my car until I, you know, identify myself where I have to, and you know what have you. You don't know who I am just because my car comes up with a clean record, and the person that owns it is not some scumbag. You don't know if I stole the car; it just hasn't been reported. We don't know what's going to happen. And so I don't know that maybe you're going to write me a ticket and I'm going to simply go, yeah, I did that and I'm going to pay the ticket. Whereas I might say, you know, I don't, I don't agree with this and I want to take this to court. Well, I want as much evidence as possible in that situation. So even if we don't get in any kind of abusive situation or what have you, I think it's beneficial to have this, this conversation recorded for quality and training purposes. I also think, to be fair to law enforcement officers, We need, and I mean need, ways to do this that are a lot more like the ways they have to do this. If you want to have a bad interaction with a police officer, when they come up to you, stick a phone in their face and say, I'm recording this, and shove it up at them, and be touching shit and moving your hands around where they can't see what you're doing. Situations where it is automatic and instantaneous and happens, and I don't have to do anything. And that data is preserved because it is uploaded automatically and sent somewhere automatically. So even if they get my phone and accidentally, if I was on video, you see big-ass air quotes, accidentally drop it and accidentally step on it or something like that or accidentally delete it or whatever, it's too late. It's a done deal. That makes it where I can actually be the reasonable person dealing with law enforcement. Most of the time... And I know there's no such thing as a good cop. Well, there's no such thing as a person that's not an asshole at one point or another either. You're probably being one when you say that. Um, most of the time, when you have an interaction with law enforcement, if you are a reasonable person, they are a reasonable person back to you. Most of the time when it's a ticket, either they're on kind of a flexible situation where, you know, if you're nice, you might get out of it. And sometimes they're getting their number of tickets they need for that month, even though they say they don't have a quota, which they do. And in that case, they're just going to be matter-of-fact business. Here's your ticket. Get your ass out of here. See me in court if you want to. Um, in the end, I want to record every single interaction I ever have with law enforcement for the rest of my life because the people that have done it have proven to me that I need to. And I have seen and heard way too much. I have experienced directly being lied to by law enforcement, lied to my face by law enforcement in a situation regarding my son who is the least in trouble person. I, this is a kid, and this was back when he was still a teenager. We actually worried that he didn't get in trouble. Like, he should get in some trouble somewhere, you know, he's at school for talking or some shit. And I had cops lie to my face, take my son out into a parking lot without my knowledge as a minor and interrogate him for over an hour at his place of employment. When they gave me their word, they wouldn't do it. So I'm done. I don't trust you guys because I can't. Just like you can't trust me. Right? You want to talk about the least trustworthy people, and I don't mean can you trust them. I mean as far as do they trust others, cops. Cops don't trust anybody because they've seen enough shit not to. 
You know, cops worry about things that the average person doesn't when it comes to just your life at home. I remember my brother-in-law, good cop. He really is a good cop. There are good cops, assholes. Um, and he was freaked out one time that I was parking my car in the street versus in my garage because that meant it was going to get broken into. I'm like, dude, my, my car's parked in the street all the time. No one breaks into it. You know, I'm not saying no one can, but frankly, that's why I don't keep shit in there. I don't want stolen. So I, you guys should understand on the law enforcement side, a level of, of inherent distrust until learned. Because you meet somebody every day who said they didn't do nothing and they don't know how that got there, right? So you have an inherent distrust with everybody you deal with until trust is earned. I have an inherent distrust with everybody I deal with until that trust is earned, and your badge and uniform doesn't change that inherent distrust. Because I'm back to my 10% scumbag theory. I believe 10% of the people in the world are absolute scumbags. And 90, 90% are pretty decent. And I don't think that your class of employment changes the ratio very much. I really don't. I think 10% of priests are scumbags. 10% of school teachers are scumbags. And therefore, 10% of Leos are scumbags. So I will record all interactions from here on out. And I think we need to do more like this where it is safe for both the law enforcement officer and for the person interacting with them and as seamless as possible so no one has to do anything. And... And done in such a way that it prevents tampering with evidence. And it preserves the evidence in a way that even if you take me to jail, and even if you think you accidentally lost my phone in an evidence locker somewhere, that data still exists. I'm sorry. And, and that's just the way that it needs to be from now on. I really believe that. And I also, again, though, I don't think you should go out of your way shoving cameras in cops' faces and shit like that. Because no one likes it when anybody shoves anything in their face. It's, 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 it needs to be more of a simple, I want you to know that this entire conversation is being recorded for both of our safety and our both of just to make sure that everybody knows what was said. And I think that is the way to approach this instead of, oh, I'm recording this. I, you know, there's people out there trolling cops like that, and sooner or later it goes bad for everybody, and don't do it. Next up is a uh, another article from CNN, the Corrupt News Network. King of fake news, and uh, this is not well, not directly political. Um, they have a new study that they're they're talking about on CNN that states that an increase in handgun ownership is killing kids. Although there's a gaping flaw in it. Basically, what they say is over the last 40 years that gun ownership has gone down in America. There's less people. There's more guns, but there's less individuals and families per capita that own guns than did, let's say, in the 1960s. But the, the guns that ch people are choosing to own, those that are, are, are being kind of moving in, the, in, the, in favor of handguns. And I'll tell you, that makes perfect sense to me, because if you're not a hunter, see, a lot of times in the, the 60s, 50s, etc., no one really thought of having a gun for defense in that context. Well, of course I have a gun for I have all kinds of guns. So I have a tool for defense. So it was just a de facto that since I have a shotgun, if somebody comes to my home and I need a gun for defense, I'll grab my shotgun. As less and less people hunt, that's a big part of the reason that there's a lot less long guns being bought. Of course, according to the same type of people who did this study, everybody's out there gun, you know, armed to the teeth with 25 uh, AR-15s and 25 AK-47s. But in general, yes, the, 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 the number of people buying handguns in, in relationship to the total number of gun owners has gone up. 
because they make a lot of sense for home defense and because concealed carry uh, laws and right to carry laws and, and constitutional carry laws have been passed all over the United States. There's approximately, I think, 17 million people that have some form of a concealed carry license today. Many of those people have one in states that don't require one just for the purpose of reciprocity with other states when they travel. And so a lot of this growth could even be attributed to concealed carry holders who, you know, studies have shown that, valid studies, they're the safest people on the planet with or without a gun. But what they've said is that as the number of handguns have gone up, in the last 10 out of the last 40 years, the number of children killed with guns under age 5 has doubled. And basically the study is saying causation equals correlation, right? Um, and when I actually found the study, there's one little bitty link in the whole article because they don't want you clicking on it and reading that study and getting the raw data. Um, the people that did the study acknowledge that they did not differentiate in how the children that were killed died. Because when you read the article, the whole thing is written that all you evil bastards with your handguns bring handguns in your home, children go find the gun, play with it, and blow their brains out or kill their best friend. That That's that's the angle that just even the abstract was written and the, the conclusion of the study was written, the summary, if you don't read the actual study, that that's what's going on. Again, I want you to keep in mind, this is under the age of five. Now, I thought to myself, I said, Self, I don't hear a lot about kids under the age of five being shot with handguns. Just don't hear about it. And it's 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 the, one of the kinds of stories that the news loves to jump all over and say, see, gun owners are evil. So since, Self, you don't hear about it that much, there must not be that many kill, children killed with guns at all under the age of five. Because remember, while the study focuses on handguns, they just simply looked at the raw numbers of children killed with firearms under the age of five. So I said, why don't you, because you're pretty smart, go out and find out over the last 16 years um, how many children were killed with firearms. Actually, it was 17 years. And the number is about 100 a year. It's about 100 a year. Meaning the, the time before that, going back to like the 80s and 70s and 60s in this 40-year period, um, the number was somewhere probably in the neighborhood of 50 because they said it doubled. But it was still very low. I want you to understand, about 100 a year sounds awful. It's actually 98 when I did the math. But it's in a, a, a nation of 300 million plus people. And when numbers are that small, you can have totally unrelated things create a doubling because the doubling still a small number. Now, the next thing I said to myself, I said, self... What is the age at which this child under five is likely to get, play with the gun, and kill somebody with it? Not that they couldn't do it younger, but what is like, what is the point where you think, yeah, it's more likely that this kid could have the manual dexterity to like work a safety or push a slide or, you know, the way this thing is angled, like kids are curious and they play with stuff and they don't understand and then somebody can get shot. And I said, well, you know, zero to one year is old. If a one-year-old is killed with a gun, then, you know, you, somebody else did it. And then I said, you know, self, probably up to about two. So I took the total number of children over this time period 
that were killed with firearms, again, we don't know whether they're handguns or not, that were zero to two years of age. And I took them out of the number, and I came up with a number of children left, under five, killed with a gun of any type of 50, 70 a year. This is so statistically insignificant. The lives are not insignificant. I'm not downplaying the loss of the life. But there's the, the, so because if you have a one-year-old who was killed with a gun, you probably have a crazy father that shot his whole family or something like that. Or a drive-by shooting or something. Not something that correlates with an ownership of handguns in of itself. And again, how many of these kids were killed with rifles or shotguns? How many of them were killed by somebody else that was unrelated to anybody legally owning a handgun? And the answer is we don't know because they intentionally didn't go that far into the data. And I'll tell you why they did not go that far into the data. There's so little data because there's such a small number in, in the beginning that if you combed out all of that to make the data pure, there's not enough data to either prove or disprove your hypothesis. That's how small an amount of data there is. And they do this crap all the time. And you guys ask me why I don't trust the Brazilian climate study uh, studies that were done, climate change studies were done, when the people were getting millions of dollars in research grants by submitting those studies that way. I don't it's not that I don't trust that data. I don't trust science when it comes to studies as a whole without being able to read the raw data behind the scenes. And every time I do, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed. Just saying. Next up, let's talk about dealing with quail manure waste. Um, my buddy Steve Larkin sent me an email, and what he wanted to do was he wanted to um, use quail to feed catfish with their manure. So here's what Steve had to say. Hi, Jack. My question is, can I raise catfish under my quail? Details. I've been very successful raising worms under rabbits in the past. I thought I would try raising them. In the quail setup I have, the manure is way too plentiful and way too hot for worms. I have seen pics of Chinese raising catfish in ponds under chicken houses, which were built on stilts over the water. They have wire or possibly bamboo floors so the manure can drop through, and that's what feeds the fish, usually tilapia. I'm attaching a picture in my setup to give you more detail. The unsuccessful worm bed will be replaced with a large stock tank. What else would I need for this to be successful? So there's a heater, aeration pumps, etc. And my answer was, no! No, you kill your fish. Um, the reason that manure is so hot is it's high in, high in nitrogen. And trying to run something the size of a stock tank while quail are crapping in it is just not happening. Um, there is no way you can build enough beneficial bacteria to convert that much nitrogen to nitrite and still not have the tank just get way out of balance. It's, it's, it's just not possible. You can't do this. It will not work. Catfish will eat bird shit. Um, there is a bird called a cormorant. Uh, they call them water turkeys around here. And it's a pretty popular thing that when the cormorants come in and they're all roosting on the bridges, you go fish there, you catch catfish, blues and channels especially. So it's not that catfish won't eat bird poop. Whether or not they're going to eat quail poop, I don't know, but they probably would. But you got to understand that when you're, they're doing these types of systems like this or a natural system like this is, is taking place where catfish are eating cormorant crap, um, first of all, with a cat, with wild catfish, that, 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 that bird is primarily a fish eater. And it's a catfish eating a fish waste product. It, it's not like a catfish eating a chicken uh, waste product. But those chickens in China, you know, tilapia is eating that, etc. Um, I guess that happens. And... 
but even they, they're dealing with so much more water. So birds crap in lakes all the time, and, and the lakes don't turn into, you know, lakes of death because of the sheer volume of the water. So it just won't work. So that was my first thing. Just don't do it. And then when I get an email like this with a really bad idea, my mind first, let's, let's put the kibosh on it. And then it kicks in, like, what are the solutions? So then my, my initial solution this morning before I had my second cup of coffee, uh, when I emailed Steve back on this, I said, well, what the best thing for you to do would be use, you know, wood chips, leaves, straw, uh, and build uh, compost piles. And let that break down. And then you have quail manure. Quail manure. And then you have your own Steve's brand of, uh, of fertilizer that you can either use or you can sell. Compost the quail manure. And I think that's a great idea. But then I had a second cup of coffee. I had time to think about what I'm doing today. And I said to myself, self, what else could you do to accomplish the goal of feeding fish. And I don't know that catfish is the route that I would go here. Uh, something like bluegills, various sunfish, in our climate may be better catfish. See, one of the constants with aquatic systems is sooner or later, um, you will then tend to end up with ick on fish. And skinless or skin fish like catfish are far more susceptible to dying of ick than a scale fish like a bluegill. I'm not saying that you know you should never raise catfish, but I'm saying the smaller the tank, the more likely you are to have a problem with ick, and the more likely you are to lose fish. Uh, bluegills have proven to me that they are about bulletproof even when they get ick. They live through it until you cure it. Most of them anyway. But <clears throat> Can I use quail manure to feed fish? And I thought of a little critter called a black soldier fly. And I said, you know, they you can throw meat in a compost with black soldier flies, and they decompose that uh, rapidly, and they keep it from stinking as long as you don't over, you know, put too much in at one time. Could they handle quail manure? And so I said, self, I bet you YouTube knows. So I went to YouTube, and I found this lady that has a whole channel on raising Japanese quail, Courtney's quail which is what everybody raises in general. And it turns out she has a whole system set up to take their quail poop, turn it into black soldier fly larvae, and then feed the, the, the larvae to, um, to chickens and quail or fish. So, Steve, if you're listening today, and I hope that you are, if you wanted to do this, the way you could do it is you set up your stock tank nearby and you set up a black soldier fly... Um, bin, and you set it up. And the way these things are, they, they build them with about a 40-degree angle that goes up out of the waist. And when the little fly larva mutates to the point where his, his, he's now got to go turn into a fly. He's like basically a big worm maggot thing, and he has to turn into a fly. He'll crawl up out of the, the waist and look for a place. He'll climb up that ramp, and he'll fall out wherever that ramp leads to. Some people put a coffee can there, catch a bunch of them, take them to their chickens. Some people put a coffee can there, catch a bunch of them, and every day go by and throw them in the freezer. Or of course, they freeze to death, but they remain intact, and they store them up that way. A lot of aquatic systems, what we do is we put that little ramp right over where the fishies live, and all day long throughout the season and, and pretty much late spring all the way into early fall, so you know, good over half the year, down here probably nine months out of the year, 
every day a certain number of little guys graduate up and plummet to their fishy death. So if you wanted to do this, you could set it up fairly automated. I do not think you will produce enough um, black soldier fly larvae to 100% feed your fish, especially if you want to graze them in a reasonable period of time. However, I do think you would seriously augment um, what you're doing there, and you're still ending up with a compost product. So I, I think that's solid, too, and you may end up doing both because with the amount of quail that Steve's doing, he may need at least two black soldier fly bins to deal with the quantity of waste, or it may just be easier to put one in, do your fish thing, and take the, the whatever waste you can't use in your black soldier fly bin and do the standard composting with it. So that's how I would do it. I have a link to this video, really great video. She has like a pre-made product she's using, bio something or another. I got the feeling that she's not in the United States. Um, she's definitely an Asian lady. I got the feeling, though, maybe she's in the U.K., I didn't really pay that much attention to all of that stuff. Just wanted to see, does it work? But I have a link to her and her channel. Her whole channel is on Raising Quail. And uh, I think you can learn a lot from people that that's like they do one thing and they do it right. And so those are some thoughts. Anybody else got any ideas? You got quail. They produce a bunch of quail poop. You put them in a worm bin, the worms die. That's what happens. It gets too hot, they die. It's too much waste, too fast, too hot a waste. Doesn't work for them. What can we do? What can we do to change that? Again, I got compost, and I got black soldier fly uh, composting. Those are my two ideas. Anybody else got any ideas? Let me know. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Um, this one comes from the awesome John in Moore Park yet again. He says, is this an attempt to hijack the term hustle away from working for oneself? The title of the article is, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? It's from the New York Times. And here's a quote from it. I saw the greatest minds of my generation log 18-hour days and then boast about hashtag hustle on Instagram. When did performance and workaholism become a lifestyle? That is all of the article I will read to you today. Because when I scanned this article and got the general surmise of the article, my, my brain began to hurt, and I could literally feel the intelligence leaving my body. My, my, my intelligence was like, you know, if you're going to put this into me, then I'm leaving you because you don't deserve me. This is how stupid this is. The, the author talks about how gener Generation X were slackers, and he talks about himself like he's a Gen Xer. I'm not sure that he is. Uh, he may be a, tail end, a, a beginning millennial, honestly, based on the way he writes. Um, there's no place for people like him in the work culture today because they don't believe in like you know working yourself half to death. And, of course, he wrote these horror stories about how hard these people are working. And I don't remember the name of the place, but we've covered it before. It's actually a company that rents teams to other companies. So if you need like a marketing team with specialization and whatever, they have a place where they can go and you have a team that works for you there at that place. So you have a remote team, but there's some oversight and supervision and they work, they're accountable to each other. You can kind of monitor their progress and they have all the stuff that they need. And these teams are working really, really hard and they have created a hustle culture to where they even carved like hustle stuff into the cucumbers in the big giant cucumber water thing, right? Like a message in carved into the flesh of the cucumber, which I thought was actually kind of cool. And basically, This guy's problem is that these people are proud of working so hard. Like I said, you'll be stupider if you read the whole thing. You really will. It will make you. My, my brain right now is threatening to leave me 
because I'm talking about this. It's pretty angry with me, but we're going to get through it. Brain, I promise you, we're going to help other people here. Um, this is the truth. My brain just got happy. It knows where I'm going. Um, every generation has its hustlers and its slackers. Every generation. And we hustlers have always been looked at as being like, there's something wrong with you. You're a company man, whatever. You slackers always end up working for us. You can say there's nepotism. You can say the glass ceiling. You can say a million excuses for why the majority of people advance. And the most of, I know there are some people that luck their way into it or fall into it. Or, in general, the people that work the hardest, hustle the hardest, and get better. See, working hard is only part of it. The people that work hard and get better and take more responsibility and show up early and leave late, they end up with the office that you wish you were in and you bitch about the person in there. So that's just that. Now, what John says is this attempt to hijack the term hustle away from working for oneself. I don't necessarily think so. I think you can hustle. Right? I think you can hashtag hustle uh, with your side hustle. I think you can hashtag hustle with your full-on business. I think you can hashtag hustle as uh, an employee. I wish I had more of them back when I employed them. Maybe I would have stayed in the business of employing people if I had found more hustlers that worked hard. The reality is the majority of people that don't come from an entrepreneur family where there's a family business to go into, that do get into business for themselves, the majority of people come through employment as a gateway to it. They get kicked around enough by life that they know they don't want it anymore. They develop skill sets. They get exposure to other people, their words, their thoughts, and their ideas. And they develop a level of talent. And this is one of the reasons it's so difficult to hire people that, that are like this long term. They always want more. So once they get everything they can from working for you, they either go work for themselves or they go to the next job that teaches them more. Which, if I was counseling them, is exactly what I would tell them to do. It's exactly what I would tell them to do. But this guy, this author, talks about these people like they are... The, video, the, the picture, at least go look at the picture. Don't read it. It'll hurt your brain. The picture shows these guys like these workers lined up. And it makes you immediately think of communism. And like, oh my God. So the, the, the people that work their ass off voluntarily to earn more money are now the communists. And I'm thinking, you know, don't read too much in the picture. It's like, I, yeah, I, like a kid, I could not read the whole article. I scanned to the end. Because usually these pablum puking crap, you can read the beginning, like a couple sentences. You can read like a couple sentences in the middle and the end, and you get the whole point. Right? Because it's just a, people talking to hear themselves talk after that. But at the end, it says it's, it's propaganda right out of communism that you should work this hard. So, <laughs> what sounds more like big government, big state mindset to you? Doing only what you have to do to get by or busting your ass to get ahead. It's the exact opposite of communism. But these people, they are so wrapped up in their nonsense, that they can't comprehend this. And what they really don't like to see is someone getting ahead by working harder than they're willing to work. And this makes me think, I've been listening here and there when I get a chance to little bits and parts of John Willis's new podcast with his buddy Scully called Pulling the Thread. John was talking about this girl at work for him. She's going to prison for life now. For life. Federal prison for life. She initially got arrested for a very minor drug charge. Nothing that couldn't be handled, 
and not a felony, are not going to do any time at all. And John has a policy with his workers. Pretty much when the doors open and the lights are on, if you want to work and there's any work available, you can work. You want to show up early, you want to work 12-hour days, you can work 12-hour days. You want to do the minimum and work eight, you can do that. You don't do the minimum long enough, you get your ass fired. But pretty much when somebody's like, they need extra money, go do extra work, you get extra money. Real simple. Well, I don't remember the whole thing, but it, it was like a cascade of failures. Where she got in trouble, then she got in trouble again, and you had three strikes law, and never did any extra work to pay off her fines or anything. And now, one way or another, going to prison forever. Work was a much better alternative than going to prison forever. But these, these idiots, they act like working like that is like going to prison. Let me tell you something. You go to prison for a week, and you'll prefer working 18 hours a day to prison real fast. And, and, and this is just like, it's ridiculous because finally you start to see the true work ethic of the millennial generation that's been crapped on by people for 10 years now. And these guys do have the one, they're, they're, they're sorry asses in every generation again. TV likes to show you the worst and the best of people instead of the average. But I think most millennials, once they know what they're supposed to do, once you get them out of the, the way, see, school, school screws them up, but once you teach them to be able to think and adapt and go to the next step without asking you what it is, they work their asses off because they're hungry. And hunger makes a person who has drive work. And they're seeing people around them become wealthy, and they want to be wealthy too. And they know they're not going to get super wealthy working for a company like this. Or that only a very few of them ever can. There's only so much advancement. But they know hustle, drive, and desire will lead them to a path that will, they'll go somewhere else. They'll go somewhere else. And this company, by the way, is kind of really built that way in the first place. It's much more entrepreneurial in the first place. Because it is an outtasking team. So your client might be IBM for six months. Your next client might be IBM's competitor for all you know. You're kind of being outtasked and worked out and used with other people. And that is the wave of the future. So this person is confused by, well, let's just call it what it is, the formula for success. And it's always been the formula for success. Next up, I have a, uh, a question on what we call pragmatic prepping. And, uh, of course, there's 12 tenets uh, of modern survivalism, the 12 planks that I, I laid out when I first put this show together. And before I even read this question, I just want to give you uh, survival tenant number nine. In addition to food, water, and other common survival stores, use common sense methods, methods of hedging against disaster, pragmatic things like cash emergency funds, good insurance, and secondary income streams are not just for people in the system. These types of protections can make your life a lot less miserable when something goes wrong. Make them part of your planning. So what was the question that made me read that for you? Kevin says, wills and power of attorney. Do you consider these something people should consider as part of being prepared? We as preppers often talk about things like food stores and food preservation, permaculture skills, finances, firearms, and so on. But will and power of attorney never seem to be discussed. Should this not be something that is foremost in people's preparedness plans? Absolutely. And we've tried to talk about it here over the years. I don't know how... New or old you are to the show, Kevin, but definitely it's something we've covered in depth at times. Um, let's, let's break down these two and why I think they're important. Let's start with a will. If you don't have a will, what you're saying is if you die, you trust the state to do the right thing with your money and your family. 
That's what you're saying. That's what not having a will is saying. If, if I die in a car wreck tomorrow because I get hit by a gravel truck, I trust the state of fill-in-the-blank and the federal government to do the right thing with my estate, whatever's left of it, for my family. Doesn't that sound stupid? It sounds stupid because it is stupid, stupid, if it's you without a will. Get a will. Um, and I know a lot of people say, well, if I die, I have life insurance. It's in my wife's name, and in my state, everything just goes to my wife. Okay, you're in the car, and you get killed by a gravel truck while you and your wife were going somewhere together. Now, what about your kids, adult or children, right? Well, if you don't have children, well, what happens to what you have? If you have family members that you think will all get along and equally divide the state, just let me tell you something. It's very rare that it ever works that way. You have to spell out what you want. And then that way no one can argue with what it is. So wills, definitely. And wills are something you should occasionally sit down with your attorney and review your will because uh, things change. But a good attorney will write a will so that as assets increase, proportions remain the same and it's just... That's how it's going to be. Now, there may be certain physical possessions that you need to make sure that you add to that. And one of the things you can do, this isn't legally binding, but in between uh, sitting down with your attorney to update things, if you have something that's going to be a long-term thing that somebody's going to want and you want somebody to have it, you can keep kind of a private record that other people know where to find it if you pass away that says, of these things, I would like these people to have this stuff that I haven't got in my will yet. If you have anything that's super valuable, you buy a super yacht or you have a Mona Lisa hanging up in your, you know, you need to make the appointment and get that amended to your will. But little knickknacks and things like that. A lot of times what people fight over when people die is some of that grandma's rolling pin. You know, that it, it's those sentimental things. So if there's somebody you want to have it and you've told them and you think that's good enough, no, it needs to be written down. And if there's somebody else that might want it, you need to have a discussion with them. I've, I've, I've allocated this when I'm gone to so-and-so. If, if there's something of mine you'd really like to have, let me know. And you might find that when they tell you it, you'd be like, well, you can have that now. Or I'll make sure you, get, you have it when I'm gone. So wills are incredibly important. Power of attorney. This is way too complex for a segment on a, a multi-part show. We probably do a show on powers of attorney and how they work. Um, there's what's known as a general power of attorney. It allows another person to basically legally act as you in all things. I don't generally prefer this type of thing, but there are times when it's necessary. Uh, but I can tell you that a lot of military people have gotten themselves in really big trouble with this because they left a spouse with a general power of attorney instead of a specific power of attorney. And if you're in the military, you need a power of attorney because you're traveling somewhere where nobody's going to be there to take care of things while you're gone then what you need to do is sit down with JAG and they will, you know, you can get free access to a lawyer, use it and make sure that you avoid certain things like the ability to set up credit in your name. I'm just going to say that it happens a lot in military families when things are going wrong and the guy doesn't know it because he's busy deployed and doesn't realize what's going on at home. Um, one of the more important types of a, a power of attorney, though, and generally when we're having this conversation, we're talking about is medical power of attorney. If you're in a wreck and you're on life support, There should be somebody designated that gets to make those end-of-life decisions for you, that you trust to do that. And I know a lot of people are going to go back to, well, my, my spouse has that ability. Well, number one, we've had instances where family members have objected. We've ended up in court, et cetera. We've seen that happen. Um, and eventually maybe even the spouse's wishes were honored, but it was difficult and families were destroyed. 
where when it's cut and dry, then it's cut and dry. But the other thing is, again, now I trust my spouse and she trusts me. Okay, you guys are in the gravel truck, in the truck, in the car. You get hit by the gravel truck. One of you dies. The other one is on life support. Well, who now? Your oldest child? Do you have an oldest child? Your father, your mother? Are they estranged from each other and divorced? I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like this stuff, you need to think about. A DNR is another thing you need to think about whether you want that or not. That basically says, if I go to a certain point, I don't want life-saving uh, things done to me. Uh, generalized things that people put off later in life when they're worried, like they have Alzheimer's and they know they're, they've been diagnosed and they know they're going to get to a point where it's not worth it in their minds anymore of being resuscitated, um, that type of thing. You got you got to go through all of this and figure out what you want and who you trust and what that line of secession is. Because it's you know it's possible anybody that's that close to you that you trust them that much, if there's three people you can name that you trust that much, it's possible for all three of you to be in the same place at the same time. So it's possible for the three of you to all die at the same time or become incapacitated at the same time. So I mean, you need to think of a lineage down. I would say at least four. Uh, and the person that's number four that you might consider iffy, the three are ahead of them in line. You can remember that, you know. Um, but this is definitely a conversation to have with an attorney, not not a podcast host. All I can give you is my general understanding. But, yes, these pragmatic things we need to do, and the other pragmatic thing we always need to do is insurance. We've talked recently about life insurance, but insurance on property and other things. There's uh, – and. A good insurance agent. See, the problem is most insurance agents sell whole life. And I'm not going to get into a discussion with it ever again with anybody other than say it sucks. You could try to convince me that you can bank on yourself and all this other bullshit. Whole life sucks. Most insurance agents, life insurance agents, sell whole life because it pays well. Um, term life actually pays pretty good too, though. So you guys can sell that and actually do better for your clients. But a good insurance agent should be able to sit down with you and go through all your insurance needs including sometimes insurance that maybe they are not able to provide. I like agents that can do most things. Um, we use State Farm, but that's not an endorsement of State Farm. It's an endorsement of our State Farm agent, um, who's all the way down in, uh, in Mansfield, uh, about an hour and 15 minutes away from us, and we've used them forever, uh, and he's good. And if I did need to go have a sit-down conversation, I'll drive down there before getting a new one. So I'm not saying you're going to be fine if you have State Farm, but State Farm provides most insurances. And But a good agent will be able to say, well, we don't do that. But I know who does, and here's what you need to talk to them about. And so make sure that's part of your planning, too. Uh, next up, we got another one here. Let's see. Sorry, I was on the wrong screen. Uh, Jack is a jerk yet again. Oh, great. It's time for a Jack, you're a jerk email from Russ. Jack, you jerk. I have more money than I expected because of you. When I looked at my W-2 last year, I made about double the average salary had I finished my worthless bachelor's degree. I started listening to your show in 2011, which was also my first year of college. Thanks in large part to you, I realized I was wasting my time and money for a worthless degree. I eventually dropped out of college, went to night school for welding. Then, as if that wasn't enough, I listened to you again, jerk! when you talked about taking jobs that will teach you. So now I wound up working in a research and development with the engineers, and I'm learning from them. How will I ever use that kind of knowledge in the future? Thanks a lot, Jack. You really screwed me, Russ. 
I love these emails. And I want to point out to people that are new to the show, I don't think every degree that you can get in college is worthless. I think a lot of degrees are worthless. And there's two ways to look at worthless. Worthless is in worth nothing and worth less, the two parts of the word. If it's worth less, then you paid for it. It might as well be 100% worthless. Do you understand that? Do you understand? Like, if you buy something for more money than the value it provides back to you, you would have been better off not doing it. So if you're going to spend $100,000 on education for a job that pays about $35,000 a year in a sector that you're lucky to ever make 50, and you could have made at least that much money or more doing something else without spending $100,000 on your education, it was a worth less degree, however you want to interpret it. And again, there will always be pathways that will make good sense for a more classic university uh, path. Now, I think even those are going to change a great deal over the next 10 to 20 years. But there will be something that you would recognize as a classical degree structure and a classical university structure for certain things. I don't want a doctor operating on me that did most of his learning through a correspondence course. Though the first four years in college, you might as well. You might as well. Maybe you have a lab to go do anatomy or something like that, but then you go to pre-med, and then you go to med school, right? And then you do your internship, so I really don't care if the person's initial degree was mostly out of uh, you know online learning. But there's going to have to be a place where that steps up, and there's other disciplines that require that. So I don't think all degrees are worthless, but I think many degrees are worth far less than what people are paying for them, And when you buy something that's worth less than you paid for it, you would uh, you'd have been better off not doing it. If you're going to argue that with me, then I don't think you, I don't think you're intelligent enough for college. If you're going to argue that with me, let's take another one. Uh, I want to now do one I was supposed to do last week for Chris. Um, sorry, Chris, I kind of boned you last week, man. I I said in the intro I was going to do your show, and then I didn't do it. It says, what would Jack do if he sold $2,500 worth of odd crap on eBay this year and PayPal sent him a 1099K, if anything? I know you're not a CPA or tax attorney. This is purely hypothetical. So spread out over 50 to 100 transactions, selling old stuff like action figures, clothes, gifts I didn't want, spare car parts. Uh, I feel above board here. Because the vast majority of these items cost me or the gift giver far uh, when I bought new than I sold on eBay. But, of course, no paper trail. My parents have not thrown anything away since 1985 but are downsizing with some effort and could easily see doing more than $2,500 next year. What would you do if anything differently? Uh, there's a potential to earn, let's say, $10,000 next year. Thanks, Chris. Okay, let's say you have to pay 100% of the taxes on this stuff. You can't find a single deduction. And let's say your your tax bracket is 20%. Your, your effective tax rate is 20%. Now, I know we could use, you know, new math. Uh, Common Core math figured that out in 75 uh, steps. But it would be 10% of 2,500, which is $250, is 10%, so double it, 500 bucks. So in a 20% tax bracket, you'll pay $500 tax on this. I hate that because I don't like the government to have my money. And I don't like them to have your money. And I want to try to get that number down as low as possible. But in the end, you still make $2,000 free and clear. And that's $2,000 you didn't have that's still in your hand to do other things with in your life. So you're going to pay tax on the money. Let me explain something about a 1099K. 
If you're running a full business, full-on business, you have multiple 1099Ks, you don't necessarily have to send all those 1099Ks in with your taxes, and you use your record-keeping and your invoicing, etc., and as long as you've accounted for all the money there, you're generally good to go. You may get a nasty letter from the IRS about it, but if you have a good CPA, and if you're running a business of that type, you should, write back and, and basically say, that money is included here. This is where we got it from. This is our merchant account provider. And because we use, you know, this merchant account provider, you make them send in this 1099K. By the way, as part of the health care bill in 2008, it's where this shit started, um, we would be double reporting if we did that. And then you generally get a letter back saying, we wanted your money, but now we understand we can't have it. Uh, but you want, a good, you want a good CPA with that. Uh, when you're doing it as just it's a side hustle income, your best thing you can do is you stick it right in there like it's a 1099K from contracting work, and you just report it flatly as income, okay? At least until you learn to do your record keeping, you have a business set up, et cetera. You just, here it is. It's just like I went off to work for so-and-so uh, as a contractor. However, you need to keep track of every expense that you had, which would be, of course, all your mailing expenses. Yeah. Since it's not employment, even though I said to treat it like it's contract employment, it's not employment. It's, it's total self-employment. Uh, all your mileage, and maybe it was a little longer to get there than they, you see what I'm saying. But you want to keep a mileage log in case you're auditing, you just throw it down in front of them. Here's, here's you know, how are they going to prove you didn't? Actually measure distances between places, etc. And, you know, I had to go here to pick this up. I had to go get that. Whatever. Make sure you know the, 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 the code so you, you, you claim it the right way. See, it's not about... Them being able to prove you didn't do it. It's about how you claimed it in the first place. When you, If you got audited and you went in and said, well, I did this, and that's wrong. Oh, well, you can't do that because that was the first place you went that day that involved your work. So now you claimed it wrong. Okay? So you're just going to write off every expense you can legitimately put against this. I don't think in the situation that you're in, you can claim the goods as having any cost value to you. So there's no cost of goods sold from a standpoint of this fork that was given to my dad originally had a value of five bucks. Because the way it stays par is you didn't buy it, you just sold it, so you had no cash outlay, so you have no money in it. Now, if you can prove you paid for something, or you can at least plausibly claim and document and say, this is when I got this, this is how much it was, then you're a little bit better off. But there's better ways to deduct this. Going forward, now that you know this, you need to pay much closer attention to how any cost you can associate with any item and keep good records with it. Now, here's the good thing. Unless you do something stupid, um, the odds that a person that makes 10 grand in self-employment reports the 10 grand and then deducts the shit against it is actually going to get an audit. Not a, na a nasty gram and an audit are different things. We'll get to that in a second. But actually get audited are very, very low. If you make less than $200,000 in gross revenue, the odds or in income, either or, the odds you will personally get audited are very, very low, and it starts to go up from there. The, the companies the IRS loves to audit are about $700,000. I'm not saying if you have a $600,000 business, you're not going to get audited. I'm just saying, like, the sweet spot is about seven hundred grand up to about three to $4 million. 
They're still pretty small businesses. They can only afford so much of a legal representation, and there's enough money there to make it worth going after them. And I've heard enough prior agents speak about that to know that's where they are sent the majority of time. They will send a big-ass team into a place like Trump, Trump Industries or something. They'll do that too. Sometimes more for political purposes or more for appearances than anything else. But the place they make their money is the middle-class, medium-sized business. And that's how they fund themselves. It's vulture funding itself. So I'm not saying they cheat. I'm saying that if you do things the right way, having to completely fully try to go through an audit is low. Now, Nastygram works differently. We believe that you calculated this wrong. We believe that you failed to report. We believe that this deduction is not valid. Please send us X amount of money plus the fees and penalties. Okay, You get a nastygram like that. You have to realize that just because you disputed it doesn't stop the fees and penalties taxi meter going. So then you have to look at that and say to yourself, self, does this make sense to get my CPA to write me a letter? Or if they want 45 bucks, do I just send them 45 bucks and just... You know, go. I did better than that anyway. And they don't need to know. You, you, you kind of got to figure that out as as you go with that. I don't like them to have anything, but I got a letter from them one year saying that I owed them ninety one dollars, and I knew that if I would have went the route of disputing it, I could lose, and it would cost me more in time and headache to dispute ninety one dollars and just give them the friggin' ninety one dollars. I'm like, well, you know, I'm gonna have to have a couple extra meals out this, uh, so do some strategic planning and get that money back out of this year's taxes. Then we're just gonna have to even that out. I'm gonna focus on the 90% of the code that says what, how I get out of what they say I have to do. I also had one year they came after me for 6,500 bucks, and my accountant slash tax attorney slam dunked their ass with his letter, and that was totally worth doing. So, up to 10,000 bucks, just keep good records. Keep good records, and if you can legitimately apply a cost basis to an item, do it. Absolutely do it. And you know, if you take the items and you list them on eBay, and you list them on Craigslist, and you list them in a local Facebook marketplace, then you might sell it to someone where it doesn't go through the interwebs. And you do with that information as you will, and it's good business anyway because why? Because it creates greater diversity in your potential for your marketplace. That's why. That's the reason you do it. All right. Next up, let's see here. I have a question. Where can I get cheap glasses? Jack, you mentioned a place where I can get cheap glasses. This comes from Michael. Michael, you also asked a question about handheld radio walkie-talkies for your kids. I will let you know that I sent that off to the Harris himself, Mr. Stephen Harris. He will be doing that for you. But I am going to talk to you about glasses and why I use the company I use. The company I use is called Zenni Optical, Z-E-N-N-I Optical. And even if you spell it wrong, if you Google Zenni Optical, you'll be close enough that it will correct for you and you will find them. Um, I buy glasses there, for instance, kind of my stock everyday wear glasses. Um, the lenses are a little bit better than just stock, but they're pretty much the bottom end. And I pay less than 20 bucks a pair for those. And they are wireframed, silver. You guys see pictures of me all the time. All of my glasses pretty much look like that. What changes is the lenses, and I have a couple different frames that I've bought over the years. I have some that are prescription sunglasses. I have some that are pre uh, prescription where the, the they you know they turn 
they turn dark in the sunlight and they go back to light when you come inside. Uh, and I have some, I lose shit, plain and simple. So when I realized I could get glasses for about 15 bucks, I went and bought like six pairs. And then they come in a nice little glasses case, a little cleaning rag and all. Okay, that one goes in the truck glove box. And when I can't find any, I go to the truck and find a pair of glasses. Because when you lose your glasses and you wear glasses, you can't see the glasses that are laying right in front of you because you don't have your glasses on. Right? So I have like two or three pairs of the polarized sunglasses. I have like one really good pair of high-end lenses with the, the, the tint. can't remember what they call it now, but the, the tint that goes on outside and all. And the, the best pair that I own, I paid $65 for. If I had bought them from my optometrist, they would have cost me $400. He was quite dismayed that I wanted my prescription so I could buy my own glasses and I didn't shop in his little shop at his place. Um, and what I said was, listen, if you sold me this $60 pair of glasses for $120, I do care about your practice. I do like you. And I probably would at least buy my expensive glasses for twice what I could get them for online. I probably would, like our relationship means enough to do that. Would you want me to pay $400 for something I can get for $60? I'm sorry I'm not doing it. You know, and like, you know, my wife wears more complex glasses. She also wears contact lenses, but she wears more complex glasses and all. And a pair of glasses, like, that's like everything that she would want in a pair of glasses could cost her like $600. And you're still around 100 bucks on Zanny. And I've had, every time I talk about them, I get optometrists, they write me and they're angry. And you don't understand how important the revenue stream is for us. And by the way, they make those glasses in, in China. And I'm like, where's your doorknob made? Whenever someone says, well, is it made in China? Where's your doorknob made? Right? They work. They're good glasses. I can see. And I would say even if you want to buy, you know, your your high-end trifocals or whatever from your optometrist, backup glasses for under 20 bucks a pair? Are you kidding me? So I, I, I use them because, number one, they always get my order right. They always send me my stuff. They're inexpensive and they work. And I can't recommend them highly enough to make sure that you have those backups available to you because when you need your glasses to really see what you're doing, you don't have them, well, you're kind of screwed. And could you see being in a situation where you have to drive somebody in an emergency and during an emergency you get a wreck because you can't see and because you went and did it anyway even though you shouldn't but you had to because it was an emergency when a you know $15 pair of glasses could have just been sitting in your, your, your console or your glove box to make sure that that didn't happen? Yeah, it's like that. That's why we talk about preparedness and modern survival living. With that, we've wrapped up the show yet again. want to talk to you today, and my, my item of the day segment today is really kind of going to be uh, an extra segment. The product of the day that I have for you is the Burnzomatic TS-8000 High Intensity Trigger Start Torch. This is like a portable torch, like this screws onto a, a propane or a map gas bottle. You just push a button, it goes. It's about the most badass torch like that you can get. You can get much more badass torches, but if you want something you just screw on a bottle and push a button, it's as good as it gets. And it does all the things, all the torchy things that torches do, you know. Um, it can do minor welding. It can uh, solder large diameter copper, do brazing, heat treatment, light welding. It can do all that stuff. But you guys know why Jack would have a torch, right, beyond that. Sous vide cooking. So um, I just found this guy. I want you to check out his channel. I, I, I used to do that uh, you know, YouTube channel of the day. Maybe we'll go back to channel of the week. But this guy would be on it if I was doing it right now. Uh, it's called Sous vide Everything. 
And uh, he has another channel called Gorka Foods, and they're both great. The guy's Brazilian, and he does sous vide everything. And I found his channel, and it sucked me in, man. I've wasted hours of my life in the last two weeks watching this, this crazy Brazilian dude. And he uses this torch with a product called the Searsall. And I was going to order the Searsall and the torch next week because I have a budget like everybody else, and money comes out, and now I can spend it. Now I can't, right? And uh, so I was going to buy it next week. Get them both and then talk about them. Well, my buddy Hatch was coming over Thursday last week, and I was in the middle of watching his videos. I'm like, I can buy the torch now. So he was like, you want me to stop and pick anything up on the way in? I'm like, do you mind stopping at like Home Depot or Lowe's and getting me this torch, and I'll pay you for it when you get here? He's like, sure, no problem. So he buys this torch, brings it over, and there's a video in the review today where I am torching these chuckeye steaks. Oh, man, does it make a difference. My days of searing in a carbon steel skillet are maybe not behind me, but it's going to be far less than normal. In the video, I'm searing on the grill, but I'm not searing on the grill. I just If you do this in the house, then you get that smell in the house, really heavy, and you get smoke in the house. So I just took them out, threw them on the grill, and then seared them with the torch, and the grill's just sitting there, basically. It came out fantastic. I did a great write-up on it for you today. I put a link to a compound butter experiment that the Suvi Everything guy did, It's pretty awesome. He made some, like, really cool compound butters, and he made one compound butter that was Big Mac. Yeah, like, I mean, he took a Big Mac and threw it in a blender and then made it into a compound butter. Sounds disgusting, but it ended up being pretty good. Uh, the other stuff I thought was better, but he seared the steaks. Then he put the butter on them and seared them again with the butter. And when I saw what that sears all did, I'm like, I gotta have it. Uh, what, but what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna buy the sears all next week. So I have a link to it. You can get the torch. You can get the torch and the sears all, or if you already have this torch, you can get the attachment only. That's our item of the day. Remember, anything you see as an item of the day is something I own and I use. I've proved it out that it works for myself. I spent my money on it. If I didn't, I would recommend that you do. And also remember, you can find all my item of the day, all my reviews, everything I recommend at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. It's a subsection of the Survival Podcast website. Just redirects down there. But if you shop on tspaz, when you do your online shopping, Don't matter what you buy, you help the Survival Podcast. You can check out Deals of the Day, whatever. Just go there first. If you love the show and want to support us, it's so easy to go to T-Spaz first and check things out before you shop online. That brings us to our song of the day. Now, again, we, we had two major segments on education today. And John Adam has this, I don't know, this ability to just like pick the perfect song for the perfect day when neither of us know what the show is going to be about yet. It's going to be a week of songs about school. And uh, you guys are probably thinking Alice Cooper or something. We're going to go way back now. Uh, back to Chuck Berry with School Days. Which, by the way, the, the word School Days isn't in the song at all in the lyrics. It's only in the title. Um, but this is an example of a guy known as Market. So rock and roll is big, man, at this point, really coming on. But rock and roll at the time in history, this song came out, was mostly teenagers. Teenagers in young 20s. Chuck was in his 30s when he wrote this song. But he knew if he talked about what his market loved and, and thought about and felt, that they would buy his music. So what this song is basically about is getting yourself through school, and all day long all you really want to do is go out and listen to music and hang out with the girls. Right? I mean, go chase girls and listen to music. That's what this song's about. And, uh, you know, but there's some lines in it to tell you how education is set, uh, being changed. There's a line that says... Teachers are teaching the golden rule. I don't think we're teaching the golden rule in school anymore today. I really don't. But there's another component to this song. 
there's kind of a, 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 a hustle sound to this song, a, a calamity type of thing, a, a, you know, kind of an eccentricity. And what Chuck said about the song when he wrote it as well is it, he remembered how things changed when he went from grade school to high school. How in, in, in grade school you pretty much stayed in the classroom all day. Maybe you swapped one to another you know, halfway through the day. That was it. But when you got to high school, after every class, you're going out in the hallway and, and hooking ass down to this next place to get this next. And it, you, know, it, you get that kind of energy going on in your life. And he carried that energy through the song. Anyway, cool song. Education's definitely changed. Uh, but good, the, the fact that good rock and roll is good rock and roll hasn't. As old as this song, it's still awesome. Uh, all the song is, is still awesome. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. The guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Cooking the lunch room ready to sell You're lucky if you can find a seat You're fortunate if you have time to eat Back in the classroom, open your books Keep it, the teacher don't know how mean she looks Soon as three o'clock rolls around You finally lay your burden down Close up your books, get out of your seat into the slot You've got to hear something that's really hot With the one you love you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to Deliver me from the days of old.